trying to finish up James as quickly as the, the text will allow. And, and uh, this passage we said a few weeks ago is, is, is very important because unity, uh, unity amongst us as a body, uni- unity amongst us as believers is a big deal. It's one of the ways that Satan tries to destroy and interrupt what God is doing in our lives. Unity is a big deal. And we've seen how these conflicts, that there's this war that's raging inside of all of us, the flesh and the spirit, the old nature, the new nature are at war with each other. And when we give in, when we, when we give in to the flesh, when we live for the flesh, it creates conflicts. And we've said it, it not only creates conflicts within us individually, but it creates conflicts with us and other individuals. It, it creates conflicts amongst ourselves. We, we said that it creates conflicts in our prayers. We, we begin to ask for things for selfish reasons and selfish motives, and God can't answer those things. And so we become, we become conflicted. And then Today, we, we see that it really it builds to the fact that our selfishness and our worldliness and our giving into the flesh creates conflicts in our fellowship with God. And that's what you see there on your handout today. And we'll, we'll look at it today. But James says this, but he also gives us in verses 7 through 10 what I want to spend a few moments as well and, and, and really emphasize. James gives us the response. I'm sure that all of us are sitting here can think of ways that we're worldly. We can think of ways that the world has infiltrated into our lives, is, is winning the battle, ways that our lives probably look more like the world than they do the word, uh, of ways that we may be like James has said, where we discriminate against people based on their wealth, where we serve people because they can serve us, uh, where, where we judge people. Maybe, maybe it's even blaming God for things that, that we're responsible for. All things that James has already shown us in this letter, ways that his readers were imitating the world, ways that their lives look like the world more than the Word. And James is saying, when we do this, it creates conflicts. And what we see today in verses 4 through 6 is when we give in, when we live for the world, when we live for the ways of the world, when our lives more resemble, more closely resemble the world than they do the Word, it creates conflicts. And today, James says, it creates conflicts in our fellowship with God. That's what he says in verses 4 through 6. You adulteresses. James gets right down to the point here. Probably no, no stronger word that can be used. There's probably no stronger, no greater offense with regards to a, a marriage relationship. There's probably no other sin that a spouse can commit against their spouse than adultery. There's probably a lot of things in here that you say, you know what, I could deal with that, I, I, I don't want that, but I could live with it, I could work through it, but not that. Adultery. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, God makes very clear that His, His relationship with His people Israel, but not only, not only that, God, J, Jesus' relationship with the church is equated to a marriage. It's equated to a marriage. And James says that friendship with the world is adultery towards God. Strong language, adultery. Look, look with me at, at, at Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6. I think, I, think uh, I gave these verses just to see real quick this picture that the Old Testament paints. Isaiah 54, let me read it, verses 5 and 6. He says, For you, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth. 
You, you can look at Jeremiah 3.20. He says the same thing. He compares his relationship with his people to a marriage. He says, Surely a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Their, their sin, their forsaking the covenants, their turning away from him, it was adultery. Why? Because he has, he has, he has betrothed, he has married himself. The picture in the New Testament, Jesus has essentially betrothed himself to us. He has engaged himself to us. One day he is returning. And when he returns, there will be a tremendous marriage feast. That's what you see in Revelation verses 19, 7 through 9. A picture of a marriage feast. The, the re, Jesus Christ coming back. He's gone, John 14, to prepare a place for his bride. Just like in the Jewish day, uh, a boy would get engaged to a girl he would leave her, he would go back to his father's house, he would add a room onto the father's house where they could live. While he was gone, her job was to prepare herself, was to purify herself. It was a time to show that she was pure. If she had, if she had relationships with other men and turned up pregnant, he would have to give her a bill of divorce. You see that in Mary and Joseph. But the whole, the whole time the, 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 the to-be-groom is gone, the wife's job is to purify herself, to show that she's loyal, committed. That's the age you and I live in. Our, our, our spouse, Jesus Christ, has gone to prepare a place for us. He's gone to his father's house to prepare a room. Question is, when he comes back, how will he find his bride? She ready for his return? She longing for his return? She anxious for his return? Or, as James is saying, or has she fallen in love with other lovers because it took too long? And the lures of the world and all the things of the world have, have diverted her attention away from expecting her, her groom, her husband. And you see, no greater picture of the commitment of, of Jesus and, and, and God to His people than the book of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer, the adulterer, she represents God's people, Israel. But she represents you and I. God has betrothed Himself, engaged Himself to an adulterer. And yet he was faithful. And in Hosea, you see a picture of, a, of Hosea who goes to the slave market and, and sees his, uh, his wife who has left him, who has birthed children to other men, who has pursued other men. She's there naked on the slave market. And what does Hosea do? Hosea buys her back with everything he's got. That's exactly what God has done for you and I. He's put his son on a cross. He's given everything he's got. No greater love has a man than this than he's willing to give his life for his friend. And James is saying, when, when we pursue, when we as God's people, when we pursue relationships with the world, when our lives look like the world, when they mimic the world, when we, when, I mean, really, really the core of adultery is this. Think about it. The core of adultery is this. It's when you're finding something in someone else that you're meant to find in your spouse. That, that's the essence of adultery. That's what it boils down to. When, when you as a spouse are finding something in someone else that you were meant to find in your spouse, that's adultery. And James is saying God's people have become satisfied and fulfilled are finding pleasures in someone other than their husband. In someone other than their king. 
And, and James says, here's the result. It, when you do that, it creates hostility. This just in. I, I, I'm, affairs create hostility. Let's just agree that that creates hostility. Don't, don't underestimate what he's saying here. You adulteresses, he says, friendship with the world is hostility to God. He's saying when you, when you partner when you partner your life with the world, when you, when you hook up with the world, when you run along with the world as opposed, when you find pleasures in the world that you're supposed to find, when you find satisfaction in the world that you're only supposed to find in God, he says that's unfaithfulness to your God. And the original language here, it's pointing to a choice. This is not something that happened accidentally. You see the difference in, in Galatians 1, and, I mean in Galatians 6, 1, he says, Brothers, if any of you is caught up in a trespass, that word caught up is an accidental. They're startled by it. They find themselves in it and they didn't mean to. He's saying restore. James is saying, no, this is a choice. You voluntarily have chosen to find pleasures somewhere else. This isn't something you stumbled into. This is a choice. That's why James says what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks with no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He made to dwell in us. When, when we live for the world, when we pursue the world, when we pursue satisfaction and pleasures in the things of the world and not in our God, what we're essentially saying is the Scriptures are empty. That, that Scripture does not have the authority to make a claim over our life. That we're better than the Scriptures, that we know better than the Scriptures. That's, that's what that means in verse 5. L literally, you're saying that it's wrong. That you're better than that. That you deserve better than that. And think about it even in a marriage. Think about it. I don't know what your vows were. I wasn't at your weddings. I wasn't at many of your weddings. But, but I bet your vows said something like this. I, Chris Basham, whatever will love you for better or worse, for sickness or health, for richer or poor, till death do us part. Your vows probably went something along those lines. And to, to, to commit that and not to live like that, you're saying that your words were empty. To not follow through on it, those are empty words. And, and James is saying, when you as believers, when we as believers, when me as a believer... When we find pleasures and we find all this satisfaction and things like this in the world, you're saying to the world, the word is empty. Not only your commitment to the Lord, but His commitment to you. And His promises, as we said this morning, that we stand on. We're saying to the world, they're empty. We're saying that, you know, that our spouse really isn't all that great. That He really can't satisfy. And that's why flirtation and friendship with the world, and living for the world's ways and pleasures, that's why it's such an offense to God. Because again, it's saying to the world, our God isn't all that. He doesn't measure up in this area. So you know what I've got to do? I've got to go look elsewhere. I've got to go find satisfaction elsewhere, because I'm not finding satisfaction in my God. I'm not satisfied in Him. And it's also to say that, that, you know what, I said all those things and all that stuff is there, but it doesn't apply to me. I'm bigger than that. I'm better than that. I deserve more than that. That's why James is saying to, to live for self, to live for the things of this world, is to arrogantly say that the Scriptures don't apply to you. That you're above the Scriptures. 
And we wouldn't be so bold. Most of us wouldn't be so bold to just come out and say that. What James is saying is when you live like that, that is essentially what you're saying, that the scriptures don't apply to you. That you get a pass. It's literally turning our backs on God and saying, I know what you've said, but I know better. And you hear that all the time. I hear that all the time as a pastor. I know what the Bible says, but... No, no, don't, 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 don't stop. Stop. Just stop with, I know what the Bible says. Don't, there's no buts. I know what the Bible says. Okay, then do it. I know what the Bible says, but it doesn't matter my circumstance. It doesn't matter what I'm feeling. It doesn't, I know what the Bible says. That's it. God has spoken. There, there's, no, there's not exception clauses, and that's, that's what, when we live this way, we're saying, you know what? My situation is different. I know better. And, and look at verse 5. Look, look at what God, in response to this, in response to this hostility, God is so good. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. You, you understand that? You understand what that's saying? It's saying God is jealous for you. It means that God longs to be the source of your happiness. It means that He is unwilling to share your affections with someone else. He's unwilling. He's not going to settle for His bride fooling around with the world. And think about that. Think about that. Wives, suppose your husband was texting, just texting, just, just texting, texting with another woman. Suppose you found out that occasionally he was having dinner with another woman. So suppose, suppose he went to lunch every day with another woman at work. Suppose he, he talked about her a lot. And you confronted him and he said, what's the big deal? You know, I, I, you know what's the big deal? It's just, a, it's just a meal. It's just texting. You know what you'd say? The big deal is I'm your wife. The big deal is all that satisfaction you find in her, you're supposed to find in me. That, that your loyalties and your love are reserved for me. Listen to me, any movement towards another woman is war. It's war. And, and that's the same, but why? Because you're, it's, it's jealousy. You're not going to sit there and watch somebody creep in and destroy your family. And God is saying the same thing here, except, listen, our jealousy is mixed with sin, and it's mixed with all this other stuff. God's de jealousy is a secure jealousy. He only seeks what's best for you. His jealousy is a good thing. He's not, he's not nervous. He's not intimidated. He knows what's best for you, and he's not going to allow the enemy to pursue his bride. He's not going to allow it. The, the last thing you and I want, the last, this is a good thing. I, I read something, I read a quote uh, one time uh, um, that Oprah Winfrey, she grew up in church and when she, her preacher preached on the Exodus 20 verse 5 and spoke that God was a jealous God, she said, I, I could never love a jealous God and, and turned her back. Listen to me. The last thing you and I want is an indifferent God. The last thing you and I want is an indifferent spouse. A spouse that says, I don't care what, if Karen said, I don't care what Chris does. I don't care who he messes around with. I don't care what he does with his preacher. That's the last thing you want. You want a spouse that's devoted to you. You want a spouse that loves you no matter what. You want a spouse that sees any movement toward your spouse. You want, them to, you want it to be on. You want them to be just ready to go at it. Defend you. 
And I want a God that loves me so much that He won't allow other people to, 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 to come after me without saying it's on, without defending me and coming after me. And that's what James is saying. We have a God that, that loves us so much that He will come after us, that He, will, he is jealous for us. But, but this isn't some insecure jealousy. It's a secure jealousy. He's drawing you away from that which steal and kills and destroy so that He can give you life abundantly. And, and he knows this is a battle. It's a battle. We've seen that. And there are so many areas of our lives that we know that we have bought into the ways of the world. There are so many areas. And listen, all you got to do is listen to conversation. We know, we know who the, 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 the practical uh, gods are in our lives by listening to our conversations. What does your conversation mainly mainly surround is it about sports that's because that's your god is it about money that's your god we, we, it, we can tell what do you what gets you angry you know why you get angry because you care a lot about that thing that's your god and james is saying look at what look at look at verse six in in response to this in, in response to our our worldliness and in response to our our unfaithfulness, look what it says in verse 6, but He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The, the world competes, Satan competes, the Satan throws everything at us he can. He comes at us with everything he's got to try to draw us away. And you know what James says there? That our God meets that with greater grace. Even in the midst of our sinfulness, even in the midst of our, of our giving in, in the midst of our adultery, in the midst of our unfaithfulness, in the midst of our flirtations with the world, look what James says, God gives greater grace. He, he meets that struggle with greater grace. Listen, listen to this quote I, I read this week about our awesome God. The question was, what comfort is there in James 4, 6? The man says this. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect to our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to Him, He is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. And James is saying the response of God to our unfaithfulness, the response of God to, to our worldliness is grace and forgiveness. It's grace and forgiveness. But before we, before we go too far, though, and, and, and just think that this is some automatic thing, if it just stopped there, that'd be good. But listen to this. We can't expect this, this grace and this forgiveness to come if, 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 if we just live however we want to live. We don't just live how we want to live and presume upon that grace. He's that gracious, but, but, I, but I hope you see this not only here, but throughout the Bible. In, in, in God, there is an abundant grace. 
But in order for us to make it ours, we have to be certain kinds of receptacles. That's what James is saying. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the who? To the humble. And God's grace demands humility from us. It is conditioned on the attitude of the heart that sees our sinfulness, it admits our failures, and we turn to God for grace. And James is talking about humility. God opposes, listen to me, God opposes the self-sufficient, opposes the proud. The one who thinks and lives, even if they won't admit it, the one who thinks and lives as if the world doesn't apply to them, that they can do their own thing, that they can earn their own salvation, that they can earn their own righteousness, that they'll do it on their own. Listen to me. What you get from God is opposition. He opposes the proud and He gives grace to the humble. James says God God opposes that person. The, The word opposed literally means, it literally is the, it, it is the picture of God in battle array against such a person. That's what that Greek means. He is armed for battle and he's ready, he's ready to go. Armed for battle. And, and, and it literally, in James here, God is the active antagonist here. But the goal, listen to me, the goal is to bring you back. The goal is our repentance. The goal is to woo us back. And, and we, see that we, see, we see this all throughout the Old Testament, God opposing the proud. We also see it in the New Testament. Listen to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Let me read this for you. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He, also, he told also this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Do you see the point, the arrogance, the, the, the proudness? And viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee would have been very, very outwardly religious, tax collector despised. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. This is what the Pharisee prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pray tithes of all that I get. That, that, was the, that was the Pharisee's prayer. Listen to the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see the contrast? You see the arrogant, the proud versus the humble? Listen to this, verse 14. I tell you, this man went to this house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. God opposes the proud. He opposes the self-righteous. Yet to the humble, the one who admits their need, the one who admits their sinfulness, the one who doesn't pretend to be something that they're not, you know what God gives? Greater grace. Greater grace. I mean, you, you you see this with the prodigal. You see the picture of a father. That story is not about a son. That story is about a father who waited anxiously for his son to return. Listen to me. He saw his son a long ways off coming home. He pulled up his loins and ran to that child. That was humiliating. For a a man to pull up his loins and show his legs was humiliating. That's the picture. 
As long as that son was out there living for himself, living it up, guess what? There was opposition. But the moment he returned, the moment he repented and returned to his father's house, God humiliated, the father in that story humiliated himself and ran to that son. That son had wasted everything. And God met that humility with greater grace. I say that father did. That's a picture of our great God. That, that story, the prodigal son, is really about a prodigal God. Because there's lots of sons like that, but there's only one father like the father of that story. And he met, he met that son's sin, but he met his repentance with greater grace. I mean, he threw a party for him. What, what do you think that son felt like? What do you think that son felt like the, the, the very next day when he had slept in clean sheets? He had been sitting in a pigsty, eating pig's food. What do you think he felt like that next morning when he woke up bathed, had had a party thrown for him? You think he, you think he was happy with the way he had lived his life? You think he would thought, well, I think I can take advantage of my father's grace? No, no, no. I guarantee you he was humbled like never before. To see God's grace, to see his father's grace. And what James is saying, starting in, ver in verse 6, he's saying, look, there's greater grace available, but you, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to come with the right attitude. And in the response, James in verse 7 through 10 gives one of the purest, cleanest, most vivid pictures of repentance anywhere in the New Testament. And, and, and in response to our worldliness, you say, okay, I'm worldly, Chris, I'm guilty. What do I do? James says, I got your answer. The response to worldliness is repentance. The response to our worldliness, the response to our unfaithfulness, the response to our chasing after other lovers, the response to our finding satisfaction in, in things and people and places that were meant to be found in God, the response to that is repentance. And, and this flows directly, directly in the Greek. It flows directly out of verse 6. He's showing us what real repentance looks like. You say, what do you mean real repentance? Because listen to me, this isn't worldly sorrow. There's a big difference between being sorry about your sin and repenting of your sin. There's a big difference between being sorry you got caught and for the consequences and really understanding that your sin was against God, a godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul gives the difference. Listen to this. Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. See, oftentimes our sorry, our sorrow about our sin falls woefully short of repentance. We're, we're sorry that we got embarrassed. We're sorry that people found us out. We're sorry for the consequences. We're sorry, we're sorry on this. We're sorry on this horizontal level. And our sorrow never gets to the vertical level. It, it never gets to know, you know why I'm sorry? Because I've offended you, God. Ultimately, because I've destroyed my I've, I've hindered my relationship with you and, and I've, I've maimed your name. But he says, sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Listen, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a big difference. And James is giving us a picture of what real repentance looks like. And when we, when we look at this, I, I want us to ask ourselves, what, 
does my sorrow over my sin, is it, is it more about me? Or is it more about what I've done to God? Am I more sorry about the consequences that I'm dealing with because of my sin? Or am I more sorrowful and mournful over what I've done to God? Because godly sorrow is God-centered. Hear me that. Godly sorrow is God-centered. It, 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 is, it is sorry because of what their sin has done to God. See, I, I, you, the difference would be worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, is self-centered. It's, it's sorry because of the consequences. See, and here's the, here's the illustration. If, you know, Lord, for, forbid me from ever, but if I had an affair against Karen, I could be, sorrow, I could be sorry because all my friends think I'm a jerk. All my, I've humiliated myself. All my friends think this, all the consequences, all the this, all the that. And God never comes in the picture. When the reality is the most offensive thing about my affair would be against my holy, against my perfect holy father. My sin ultimately against him. See, Karen suffered the consequences and Karen would have suffered by that. But ultimately, you know who my sin was against? My adultery was against God. It was against God. And, and sometimes our sorrow never gets to the God aspect. It's all on the earthly, horizontal aspect. And James is saying, listen, this is, what, this is what godly sorrow looks like. How do we get greater grace in, in, in response to our sinfulness, in response to our worldliness, in response to our unfaithfulness? How do we, how do we get greater grace? That's what James tells us starting in verse 7. Look what he says. Submit, therefore, to God. Submit to God. It starts with an attitude of accepting the fact that there is one true Lord and you're not Him. It, it, it boils down to the fact of this. God, you are right. All of your commandments are good. All of them are pure. You're right. I was wrong. It is a voluntary subordination to the Word of God. It means that we voluntarily place ourselves under His Lordship, all aspects of our lives. It says, Lord, I'm going to seek to live for You and Your glory and not my own. I submit to You. And that's really what, what confession is. It's really agreeing that God is right. It's agreeing that sin is sin. It's what God called it. But not only submit to God, look what He says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Obedience to Christ is resisting the devil. That the essence of sin and unbelief is a failure to submit to God and instead submit to self or Satan. It's seeking to establish our own righteousness rather than humbly accepting the righteousness that Jesus Christ has offered. And you see that in Romans 10 with Israel. It says seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not grab, they did not accept the righteousness that Christ had offered. The, the word here, resist, it's a military term. It's saying, you're, realize that you're constantly under the attack of the enemy, resist. I remember when Jim Hampton, I may have shared this before, when he came back from his service in Afghanistan, we went to lunch and I asked him about it, and the thing that stood out for me was he said, you constantly, 24-7, lived under the, the idea that you could be attacked at any moment. No matter what you were doing, you were constantly aware that there was an enemy outside the gates that wanted 
to destroy you. You're constantly aware. That's what the Bible calls for us to do. Satan is perpetually seeking to undermine our allegiance to God, our faithfulness, and our loyalty to God. And he does it subtly by just saying, hey, live for self. Because that feels good. It's not always in these gross things. Just live for self. Because he knows this. If I can subtly, if I can get Chris just living for self, hey, those other things, those gross things that when we rank our sins, you know, those will come. But first, let me just get him living for self. Because if I can get him living for self, you know what? Down the road, what we said two weeks ago, the tomorrowland of self is adultery. The tomorrowland of greed are Ponzi schemes, bank, bank robbery. Where did it start with? It started with living for self. It started subtle. And he's saying, look, when you're tempted to follow Satan, to, when you're tempted to give in, when, when you're tempted to visit that site on the internet, when you're tempted to speak selfishly, to somebody else, when you're tempted to live for self, when you're tempted to gossip, when you're tempted to lie, when you're tempted to be angry, when you're tempted to discouragement or worry or whatever it is, resist the devil. Submit to God and resist, resist the devil. Obey God and not your flesh. And when you do this, look at it. What does it say? Satan will flee from you. That's a promise. Stand on it. I'm not saying you'll never battle it again, but over time, trust me, when you resist the enemy, he will move on to other areas. He'll move on. I'm not saying we'll be perfect. I'm saying he'll move on. It'll get easier and easier and easier. It won't, we won't be perfect, but it'll be going to get easier to resist. You stand up to Satan with the promises of God and his word. Listen, Satan cannot lead us to do anything against our will. Don't, don't say the devil made me do it. No, you wanted to do it, I wanted to do it, and I did it. He may have put it in front of us. But he has no power over Chris Basham beyond seduction and deception. He's not sovereign. And whatever attack Satan makes on me, whatever victories that he's won over me in that sense, it's because I gave him the ability to do that. I gave him permission to do that. I gave in. Resist, he says, resist. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist. And when Satan returns, resist again. Perpetually resist. And when we fail, run to God. Run to God. Draw near to God. When we're attacked, draw near to God. When you're feeling tempted to, to go that site you shouldn't do or have that attitude, run to God. Run to Him. Wherever you are, whatever you face, whatever failures you're dealing with, run to God. That's what James is saying here. Run to God. Don't, don't fight alone. Run to God. Run to this greater grace. He's saying, look, Seek the most intimate relationship that you could possibly have with God and you will find protection from Satan's attacks. See, and most of us, if we're honest, listen, you and I are as close to God as we want to be. Your relationship with the Lord is right where you want it to be. He has made himself available. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me. Draw, what does it say? Draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. You're as close to him as you want to be. You're as intimate as you want to be. You, you look at, wow, you look at the, uh, 
my son likes to watch these uh, animal shows on the Wildlife Channel or National Geographic. Guess what I noticed about the animal that the lion attacks? He, often, he attacks the animal that's on the outskirts. He attacks the animal that's been separated from the herd. He attacks the animal that's wounded. He don't go for that, he don't go for that, that zebra that's sitting in the middle of the pack. He don't get to that guy. And 1 Peter 5, 7 says that Satan is an enemy that prowls around like a what? Roaring what? Lion. Looking for someone to devour. Draw near to God. Get in the middle of the pack. Don't be comfortable just being on the fringe. Don't be comfortable just hanging out around Christians. Get in the pack. Draw near to God. Intimacy is what he's saying. Look at verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is begging his readers here to recognize the seriousness of sin. That, that it affects every single part of us, inside and out. Outwardly, wash your hands. That's significant of the outward aspect. Inward, purify your heart. James knows that you and I are guilty of sin, not only in deed, but also disposition. It could just be a mindset. It could be an attitude. It could be something totally on the inside that nobody else sees. Sin. Look what he says in, in verse 9. He says, grieve over your sin. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and joy to gloom. Sin is not a jovial thing. Sin is not funny. It's not casual. We're not joking about it. We're not making light of it. It's serious. And, and what James is saying, he knows the reality of this, that Christian joy will never be ours if we ignore or tolerate our sin. No more than your home is going to be happy if you're, if you're finding pleasures in other people. And he's saying, Christian, take your sin seriously. And, and look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will what? Exalt you. It's a reality of unworthiness that you have no right, that I have no right to come to God and expect greater grace. And yet when I do, I get greater grace. Listen, the word exalt there, look at the, listen to the picture. I, I, I was, as I was studying this week, I was stopped in my tracks when I was studying this and realized what this word means. When he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you, the picture there literally is as a person, is of a person who's entered before the king and they are laying flat on their face in front of the king, begging, pleading for mercy, totally unworthy, knowing that whatever they get from the Lord, they, from that king, they deserve. And the picture here is, is of a king, instead of just issuing a verdict, it's a king who gets down off of his throne, walks down and puts the person's face in their hands and lifts it up out of the dust. Literally lifts the person up. That, that's the word picture there for exalting. Literally puts our hand in his face and looks at us and says, you're forgiven. It's not just if some cold stands back, okay, get out of here, move on. No, he steps down and puts our hands in his face. You see the greater grace? This is, it's the picture again of the prodigal son running to his son to forgive him. 
I mean, how beautiful is that? That's the kind of king God has said, come unto me. There's grace. We, we see this exact picture in Psalm 51, and I read it real quickly and apologize. I really do try to get y'all out of here at 1045, but I got to show y'all this. As it would be, Psalm 51 is a picture of David's sin for, for, of prayer for forgiveness when Nathan makes him aware of, of his sin with where Bathsheba and all that transpired, killing Uriah, her husband, all the lies, all the deception. L- listen to David's repentance. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. This is Psalm 51. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see David appealing to the Lord's compassion. That word transgression, he, he's going to say here all the ways that we sin. The word transgression means a moral, moral failure. It means to go beyond the boundaries. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Not only in our sin do we go beyond the boundaries, that word iniquity means to twist God's law. So we take God's word and we twist it and we abuse it for our own selfish gain. He says, for I know my transgressions. Or or he says, cleanse me from my sin. That word sin, it means to miss the mark. The standard is here, the bullseye, and you got here. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Had he sinned against Uriah? Yes. Yes. Had he sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Had he sinned against the nation? But guess who David was concerned with? God. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's saying, you know what? Exactly what James says in verse 5. Don't say God is wrong. Don't say the word is empty. The word is absolutely not empty. You're right, Lord. You're right. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make, known, make me know wisdom. Listen to this. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. That's exactly what James says. Purify my heart. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Cleanse me. Make me, listen to this, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Do you see what sin did to him? It had stolen his joy. It has stolen the joy of of being known by the Lord and being the king of his people. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Listen to this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. You see the humility? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's exactly what James says in 4.6. God opposes the proud... He gives grace to the humble. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Do, do Do you see the beauty of that? 
every, David knew that every single part of him needed to be cleansed. He, he knew that sin had made him dirty on the inside and on the outside. He knew that what he needed was radical forgiveness. Ne- never once in there, never once did David excuse his sin. He didn't downplay his sin. He didn't skirt the issue of sin. He called it sin. He, he didn't try to call it something less than what it was. He simply came to God and said, I I got nothing to offer you but my sin. Will you forgive me? I am a sinner. You are absolutely right. Laid before him. And you know what David experienced? Exactly what James says, that he will be exalted. God lifted up his face out of the ashes and said, you're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're personally loved and cared for. And James is promising here, and I'm promising you here, that when we humble ourselves, that the God of this Bible, who we have a relationship with only through the blood of Jesus Christ, has promised to restore a humble sinner to a position of favor with God when they humble themselves. He has promised you greater grace, continual grace, grace that goes way beyond the norm, grace that not only forgives the sinner, but it exalts the sinner. No, 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 matter, no matter who, listen to me, no matter who you came in here today serving as your functional God, no matter what your idols are, no, no matter who you came in here trying to serve, there is none like the God of this Bible. And you will not find satisfaction anywhere except for the God of this Bible. He, he's beyond compare. What James is saying is run to Him. Give your all to Him. No matter your sin, no matter what you came in here guilty of, no matter what you came in here not guilty of, He gives more grace. He does not cast us off when we fail. He gives more grace. He meets our great sin with greater grace. And James is saying, listen, God loves us and meets our failures with grace to woo us back to Himself, to bring us back. He's saying that God demands, but He deserves our total allegiance, and He will give us greater grace when we fall to restore that. He's merciful and He's gracious, but you've got to come to Him with humility. I've got to come to Him with humility. That God gives us exactly what He demands, and He gives us greater grace. And that is in contrast, such contrast to the lies of Satan. He wants us to see that, to think that God can't forgive or He won't forgive or that He forgives begrudgingly. Or, or, and yet say, uh, these scriptures here, as we've seen today, paint a very different picture of this great God who is willing to come to you and literally lift up your face out of the mire. The, the truth of this scripture is, listen to me, the truth of this scripture is that no matter what your sins are that you're struggling with, no matter what battles you came in here losing today, no matter how worldliness has, has crept into your life, God has super abounding grace to deal with it. Run to Him. There, there is enough grace in God's heart and, and love to save and to keep us saved for all eternity and millions more. Every sinner that ever will, that ever has lived or ever will live, there's enough grace to be forgiven of your sin. And listen to me, after everybody, if they humbled themselves and came to God, there'd be grace for millions more. There is enough grace 
available to every believer to give us victory over our sin. Please hear that, and then more. Whether it's sorrow or heartache or difficulties or temptations, whatever it is, there's greater grace. That's what James is saying. And salvation of this Bible, it's all about grace. And what he's saying and what I'm pleading to you is turn to that grace. Not self-righteousness, not try to be better on your own. Turn to that grace and then live out that grace. Humble yourselves and fall upon Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus Chris, not Jesus plus anything, Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven because of Jesus. Trust that grace. Respond properly, James is saying. Respond properly to that grace. Romans 5.20, he says, for where sin abound, Paul says, when sin abound... Grace much more abounded. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. I don't know where all y'all are today in relationship to the Lord. I don't know where you are as far as being clean before the Lord. I'm just telling you, you don't need to... The invitation is this, where you are, call upon Jesus. Where you are, maybe, maybe you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've never acknowledged Him as the one way, the way, the truth, and the life, the way that you get to heaven. Maybe you've trusted other things. Turn to Jesus. Maybe you're hearing you say, I'm a believer, but, but there, the world has just whooped me and I'm living for the world. Turn to Jesus. There's nothing fancy. There's nothing mystical about it. It's humbling yourself right where you are in your heart of hearts, knowing, admitting, God, I've been more concerned about what my sin meant for me than what my sin meant for you. Turn to Jesus. There's greater grace. And then our job, just like Paul says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, in view of His great grace, he says, I urge you, I, live your lives as a sacrifice. Totally submitted. In view of God's great mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. And listen, do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, for then you will be able to approve what the will of the Lord is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. Turn to Jesus. Repent to Jesus. Plead for the blood of Jesus to be applied to your life.